I would like to die well. I've no idea when I'll die, whether it'll be as an old man, ripe in years, or whether it'll be sometime much sooner than that, sooner than I expect. But when I die, I'd like to be a man who is trusting in God right to the last. I'd like to be a man who's speaking words of grace and of truth uh, to those who are around me. And I'd like to be a man who's pointing people to Jesus. When I die, I'd like to die the way Jacob died. In the passage we're going to look at this evening, chapters 48 and 49 of Genesis, we're, we're beside Jacob's deathbed. That's the, the setting for the whole of those two chapters. And at this profound and holy time, we get a bit of an insight into what kind of a man Jacob finally became. We understand what's finally important to him. And I think we're finally convinced that the transforming work of God has borne huge fruit in Jacob's life. God has taken Jacob, Jacob who started off twisted and crooked, and he's made him into Israel, a man of wisdom, of truth, and the father of a community of faith. In verse 1 of chapter 48, Joseph's been told that his dad is ill. And this time it's no ordinary illness that Jacob has This time he's coming down with a final terminal illness, the one that takes us all in the end. Jacob's dying. In our our culture, we talk about the family being sent for, and maybe that's happened to you with a, a relative in your family. A phone call comes from the hospital or from the hospice or some other place, and the family's invited to gather because their loved one is about to die. Well, that's, that's the setting here at the beginning of chapter 48. Joseph's coming to be one last time at his father's bedside. No sooner has Joseph arrived and the old man rallies his strength and he sits up on his bed. And in a sense, he wants to tell one last time who he is. He wants to tell Joseph, his son, his identity. He says in verse 3, God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and there he blessed me. He said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and will increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples, and I'll give this land as an everlasting possession to your descendants after you. Joseph's son. I'm a descendant of my grandfather Abraham. I'm a son of my father Isaac. The promises given to Abraham and to Isaac have been handed down to me. Joseph, I'm a Canaan man. And here's an old man on his deathbed finding strength in God and trusting in his promises. It's one of the most glorious scenes, I think, in the whole of Scripture. And you'll see just the the wonderful things that Jacob says as he gathers his sons and his grandsons around him in these chapters. 
We already saw a glimpse, actually, of Jacob's faithfulness last time we met, uh, and we were together in chapter 47. Because in the final verses of chapter 47, Jacob makes it clear to him, to, to Joseph, where his loyalties lie. He begs Joseph, don't bury me in Egypt, but take me Take me back to the promised land and bury me there. Despite everything that he's enjoyed of the wealth of Egypt, his 17 years there, he hasn't been sucked in by it. He hasn't been distracted or waylaid. He's still interested only in God's promise. He's detached from the things of Canaan, and he's committed to God's covenant. He's a Canaan man. Don't bury me in Egypt, but when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they're buried. Try to picture the scene if you can. Here's Joseph, the second most powerful man in the most powerful empire in the world at the time. Joseph lives, we can only assume, in a huge palace with hordes of servants at his beck and call. They feed him with the best food in the empire. They, they groom him to within an inch of his life. I think I would have hated it. Um, that was the Egyptian way at the time. They provide for his every need. And here he is coming now to see old Jacob. Jacob in the, the shepherd in Goshen, in his Bedouin tent. Compared to the luxury of the, the palace, it's all very ramshackle. Everyone's living at close quarters. There are people and children everywhere. It's chaotic. It's noisy. There, there's not much room about the old man's bed. Uh, judging by the noise and the smell, the sheep aren't far away. The contrast between Jacob's lifestyle and Joseph's couldn't have been starker. And with that picture in your mind, notice the strange thing that Joseph says, sorry, Jacob says in verse 5 regarding Joseph's two sons. He says that they'll be reckoned as his. He wants to treat Joseph's boys as his own, as though they're members of his family. Why is the old man doing that? Jacob knows that these two boys, at this point, face the decision of their lives. The time's come and they now have to decide, are they going to be Egypt men? Or will they be Canaan men? And it's a very, very difficult decision actually for them. Try to imagine it from the perspective of Joseph's sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. They have grown up in Joseph's palace. They're fabulously wealthy. Since the day they were born, they've had everything a child could want, the best toys and the best education. As teenagers, they've had the best gadgets, the fastest cars or their equivalent. They have the admiration and the obedience of a whole nation. These two young men have everything that a world-dominating empire has to offer. Their cousins, Jacob's other grandchildren, had little or nothing by comparison. They're part of a culture that was like a thousand years behind the Egyptian culture. 
It seems to me the best way to think of this relationship, these cousins are like the country hillbilly part of the family. They're the crusty wing of the family of these sophisticated Egyptian counterparts. So these two young men are now faced with a straight choice. It's going to be one or the other, fellas. Are you going to be Egypt men or Canaan men? I think the choice is every bit as real for us today as it was 3,000 years ago. What age were these men, Manasseh and Ephraim? Well, we know that they had been born before Jacob came down to Egypt. That was 17 years ago. These guys are at least in their late teens. Maybe they're in their early 20s. We're not quite sure. But they're the age of some of you here this evening. They're recent graduates, young professionals, first-time buyers, recently married. And they're faced with the choice that you're facing in your lives just now, will they remain part of the dominant culture or will they step out of it and become part of the people of God? Will their life be one of pursuing wealth and power and fame, just like everyone else in Egypt? Will they go after all the things that everyone around them pursues or will they live differently? Will they identify themselves with the weak and the insignificant and the rather pitiful community of God? As I say, that was their choice back then, and it's our choice today. It's the choice we all face and continue to face. It's got to be one or the other. Either we choose to belong to this world, to be shaped by its values, to let its worldview be our worldview. Or else we choose to stand in a different, entirely different place with Jesus Christ. We choose to stand with one who was born in a cattle shed. One who lived in a Galilean bywater, backwater. Do you know where Jesus was born? He was born in, forgive me, Kullybaki, or Ahochel, or Achnashach. That's the kind of person we're identifying with when we identify with Jesus. Not the privileged, urban, educated elite, but a Galilean. We choose, when we choose Jesus, to stand with him who was crucified between two Roman criminals on a, on a cross. And when we choose Jesus, we choose to identify with his community, a pitiful, laughable crowd called the church. What's it going to be? Is it going to be the world and all that it has to offer? Or is it going to be Jesus and his crowd, the crowd that the world mocks and derides? Which path have you chosen? Is it Christ or the world?
Jacob is very much the lead character in these chapters we're looking at this evening, but I want quickly to flag up another development in the life of Joseph. When we looked at chapter 47 together, we saw probably the one disturbing moment in the biblical account of Joseph, where he he used an economic policy to oppress the people of Egypt, where he put Pharaoh in a position of absolute power, where he created a huge gulf between the rich and the poor in Egypt. By the time we come to the events of chapter 48, I think it's fair to say that Joseph has been renewed. He's once more walking with God and acting in faith. No matter how much he's given himself to the service of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt, Joseph, in his heart of hearts, was always proud of his identification with the people of God. And we see that now. We see it in his readiness to rush to his dying father's deathbed and to desire have the old man bless his two sons. According to John Calvin, he says that there's evidence here that Joseph regarded it a greater privilege to be a son of Jacob than to preside over a hundred kingdoms. Joseph, like his father, is a Canaan man. Once Jacob's made clear his intention to treat Joseph's sons as his own, he wants to bless them. And the blessing comes in the form of poetry. I, I don't know how you respond to poetry. I think as I'm getting older, my, my appreciation of it's increasing. I can still remember GCSE English Lit, and what, what a nightmare that was for me. I was a maths and science type at the time. This is beautiful, though. This is some of the most beautiful poetry in the whole Bible. Let me read it for you again. Jacob says, May the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has delivered me from all harm, may he bless these boys. May they be called by my name, and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and may they increase greatly upon the earth. Isn't it glorious? Look at, look, at what he, look at the way he talks about God. Jacob knows God. He came to know God, he tells us, through the witness of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. He's known God's presence. He calls God his shepherd, the one who cares for him. And God is the one who has saved him, delivered him from all harm, the angel who delivers me from all harm. It's not only clear here that Jacob has God as his Savior, but he's absolutely clear that he wants the same for Joseph's boys. He says, may they be called by my name and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, That is, may they follow in our footsteps. Lord, may there be another generation of faithfulness in our family. May they too walk with God. I think what we have here is an old saint giving voice to his his dearest dreams for his sons and his grandsons. Lord, may they find you as Savior just as I have. 
and my Father's before me. Parents, grandparents here this evening, I wonder, what's your deepest dream for your children and your grandchildren? Is it this? Is it that they would find in God their Savior? You know, I think as you hear me ask that question collectively and, and individually, you'll, you'll all want to respond with a, with a yes. But it seems to me that this is something we need to communicate to our kids with more than just words. As far as I can see, Ulster is full of people who send their children out to Sunday school because they think a bit of church will do them some good. Even in church, I suspect that there are many homes where parents talk the talk that their greatest desire for their children is that they find salvation in Jesus Christ. But my great fear is that something slightly different but tragically different is communicated to the children. Children are very, very sensitive to the realities of their home. In a home where, where all the talk is about finding salvation in Christ and walking faithfully with Him, it's quite possible that another value is clearly at the top of the pile. That value of, of education, of success, of making something of yourself. It's never articulated as the primary value of the household, but yet it's there and the kids see it. Can you put your hand on your heart and say no matter what else happens in the lives of your children, this is your prayer for them? That they find salvation in Jesus Christ. Can you do that? That's what it is, I think, to be a faithful, godly parent. To lay all other desires for your children aside so long as you could have this one. Jacob longed for his grandsons to have saving faith in the living God. And that must be our desire for our grandsons, our granddaughters, and our children too. There's one last thing I want to pick up here in chapter 49 before we deal very quickly uh, with, sorry, with chapter 48 before we come to chapter 49. In the middle of this holy and profound moment, Joseph's not happy. And you probably gathered that as Anna read the passage for us. You see, whenever he brought his two boys, he brought them to Jacob to be blessed in a particular order. He, he knew, as all people in the culture knew, that, that when, a, when a father or a grandfather lays their hand in blessing, the right hand carries priority. The blessing is somehow greater of the son who is blessed by the right hand. So Joseph knew this, and he brought his oldest son Manasseh and lined him up with old Jacob's right hand, and Ephraim he brought to Jacob's left. And then we read that Jacob, inspired by the Spirit of God, 
at the last, at the moment of blessing, crossed his arms. And he gave the greater blessing to the younger son, to Ephraim. And Manasseh, blessed as he was, received a a lesser blessing. Joseph's not happy with this. And he tried to get his dad to change his mind, to do it right. And it's strange, actually, when we think about it, that Joseph, of all people, should have been a stickler at this point. You see, Joseph is the 11th in a family of 12. And yet when we, when we read the story of Jacob's family, it's clear that Joseph ends up being the one most blessed. But here he is falling back on old conventions. He, he wants it to be done in his family as it's done in all other families of their community, that the eldest has the biggest blessing. You see, Joseph should have known as well by now the recurring pattern of how God had been working in the history of his family. God had chosen not not the eldest son, Nahor, but Abraham as the one whom he chose to favor. Of Abraham's children, it was Isaac and not Ishmael who knew the special blessing of God. His own father, uh, sorry, his own father, Jacob, had received it. Yeah, Jacob too himself had received this special blessing ahead of his older brother, Esau. So there's this precedent that God steps in and he messes up the normal order of things to bless those whom he chooses to bless. I'm sure the lesson of of this passage and the repeated lesson of Genesis is beginning to come home to us. There's nothing automatic about the grace of God. There's no such thing as a person who by rights will know the grace of God. Being born in a Christian country doesn't put you in a position where you automatically find the grace of God. Being born in a so-called Christian family doesn't privilege you in that way either. The grace of God is just that. It's His grace freely given to those whom he chooses to give it to. Friends, we can never presume on God's kindness. If you're in Christ this evening, I would suggest that's a huge cause of of thanksgiving. We, We never tire of thanking God that he has chosen to bless us. I want to spend the last few minutes and very, very quickly dealing with chapter 49. You'll notice the title there in the NIV. We won't read the chapter. I'll just guide you very quickly through it. The the title in the NIV is that Jacob blesses his sons. Actually, if you read this, you would see that some of what Jacob says to some of his sons, they're not blessings. I think probably a more accurate way to think of this chapter is as, as prophecies that old Jacob speaks over his sons. Now, rather than dealing with these individually, I'm going to try and group them together and look for some patterns that emerge. Jacob's prophecies over the first three sons, they're certainly not blessings. The NIV title just doesn't work at this point. Reuben, the firstborn, we're told, 
He, he excelled in honor. He's the firstborn of a large family. That, that made him a very privileged guy. He seems to have excelled in strength. So, so this guy seems to have it all. But the word of God to him here through Jacob, it seems to, stand to, it seems to me it stands as a warning to all those who are gifted and privileged, born with great potential, but yet throw it all away through a lack of self-control, you will no longer excel. Reuben's told. By the way, if you followed this through in the history of God's people Israel, you'd find that this prophecy worked itself out. At no point in the history of God's people was there ever a ruler from the tribe of Reuben. The eldest of Israel's sons, the place from which leadership should by rights have sprung, and not a single ruler ever emerges. Reuben has thrown it all away. Simeon and Levi have no greater place in their father's affections either. They're violent and they're cruel men. So Jacob's prophecy foretells of a time when both of their tribes will be broken up. The tribe of Simeon actually, eventually it just disappears from the biblical record. Again, this prophecy has come true. Uh, there is no, uh, there's no redeeming aspect to all of this. Of the three sons who got these prophetic warnings from Jacob, the tribe of Levi seems to have taken heed. Because if you follow the, the history of the tribe of Levi, it's true that they're dispersed. They are split up, just as Jacob prophesied that they would. But they end up with a glorious purpose. They end up becoming the dispersed priesthood of God's people. They live scattered throughout Israel, but serving God in a new and a wonderful way. We can only imagine that somewhere along the line there, they heeded this warning and this, this kind of a warning, and they were renewed with a new role in the people of God. As I was reflecting on these unpleasant warnings that Joseph gave his sons, I was struck here that again, he's a type of Christ, as so often these biblical Old Testament characters can be, momentarily. Whenever Jesus walked among us, the gospel writer John tells us that he spoke words of grace and truth. Not grace alone. Not, no, it's all going to be all right in the end. No. And not words of truth alone. Let me tell you the truth whether you like it or not. No. Grace and truth. Uh, an elusive tension, an elusive balance. I think we see a little bit of that in Jacob in these prophecies. He's willing to speak the truth, but he longs to bless. And we see that in the, what he says to his sons. I think as disciples of Jesus, we need to learn to speak these words too. As we speak about Jesus and his love, and as we extend God's grace, we speak also the truth. We're willing to say what we see. Paul urges Timothy to have that kind of balance in his preaching. He says, preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage. So it's rebuke and encourage. Grace and truth. 
I'm going to jump over Judah quickly, and I'm going to look at, uh, I think it's six or seven of the brothers in one block here in one minute. Look quickly at the group of brothers there, beginning at Zebulun. And Jacob's poem gets very down to earth at the moment. He basically starts predicting what kind of work and what kind of role these, these tribes are going to have in the life of Israel. So Gad and Dan, for example, they're going to be buffer states. They're going to be on the extremities of God's people. Whenever an invading army comes, Gad and Dan are in position to take the first and the heaviest blow. Zebulun, we're told, they're going to populate the coastlines. So they're going to develop shipping, and that's going to play an important role in the nation as they flourish in the years to come. Asher is going to produce luxuries that would please any king. The commentators think that the prophecy about Naphtali uh, might be a prediction that they bring graceful and delicate touches into the life of God's people. I don't know, maybe they're the, the artists and the creative types. Um, every community is, is blessed with those. And there's a lot to debate about the, the prophecies over Issachar and Benjamin, so I'll, I'll leave those out entirely. Although those prophecies aren't easy to, to interpret individually, I think there's something interesting here when we take them as a group, an important principle that God's Word teaches for each one of us. There's a special function for everyone in the community of God's people. By the time we get to the New Testament, the writers begin to talk about spiritual gifts. In Ephesians 4, Paul reminds us that each one of us has the grace that God apportioned to us so that the body of Christ may be built up and become mature. The Spirit gives us, every one of us, gifts so that we can play a meaningful role in the community of God's people. Now, I want us to take that to heart. There's not a single insignificant member of the church of Jesus Christ. There's not a single person at Kirkpatrick Memorial who under God doesn't have a role to play here. Each one of us has his or her role to play. I'll leave you to look for yourself at the the blessing Jacob pronounces over Joseph. Again, it's a wonderful piece of inspired poetry. And we close for now looking at the last of the blessings, Jacob's blessing on Judah in verses 8 to 12. Judah's the fourth born of the 12 sons of Israel. His older three brothers, each one of them stood in priority over him. But because of their, their moral lapses, because of their, their lack of qualification, leadership passes them by. So we're told eventually that Judah, the fourthborn, will be the leader of Israel. And we're told as well that he's going to produce a dynasty of leaders. There will be kings. They'll wield scepters and the ruler's staff. Those are the insignia of of kings and of royalty. And and Jacob goes on. This this wonderful prophecy gathers a momentum that's, that's hard to believe, actually, given the timing of it. 
In the years to come, one of these kings, we're told, is going to have obedience of the nations. Wow. And in verse 10 there, we get the clearest reference we've had ever since the story of Abraham's family began, that there's a Messiah coming, a king. Somebody remarkable is going to be born of this family and particularly of the tribe of Judah. And Jacob goes on to tell us, I don't know, with a warm heart, I'm sure, and maybe with a tear in his eye of the reign of this king. It's a glorious picture. He says that the land's going to be so prosperous that people are going to wash their clothes in wine. There's going to be so much wine about that you'll just treat it as water. That will be the level of prosperity in the community. People will have to, there'll be so many fertile vines around growing beautiful grapes that you'll end up just tying your donkey to them because there'll be so many. It's going to be a time of great abundance, a time of great joy, and a time of great blessing. The time when this king of the line of Judah finally comes to rule. Do you see what's happening here? Old Jacob, with his dying breath, is speaking of the king, the like of whom the world has never seen. This old man doesn't even know it. But he's talking about Jesus. He's pointing his sons and the community who'll follow in his footsteps to Jesus. He's saying there's a king coming. Look for him in the tribe of Judah. Friends, I'm back to where I started this evening. When I die... I want to die well. I want to die trusting in God, just like old Jacob did. I want to be speaking words of grace and of truth, just as Jacob did. And when my time comes, I want to be pointing people to Jesus. I want to be saying to my sons and my daughters and my grandchildren and anyone else around who's willing to listen to an old man, I want to say, there he is. It's the king. The king whose reign is a time of unprecedented joy and blessing. Find your place in the kingdom. I want to point them to Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that it was your plan from before the beginning of time to send us a beautiful king. We thank you that you always intended that it would be your own son, that it would be Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would make us people whose lives are are totally transformed, 
displaced, recreated and rebuilt entirely because of this king. Because he came, because he reigns now, and because he will reign forever. Lord, help us to step out of this world to shake free from the grip that it holds over us. To say finally that we will not be Egypt people, but that we will be Canaan people. That we won't be people of of this world, but that, that we will be Jesus people. And Lord, let that sense of all these things grow in us and mature in us, so that in our old age, when we lie on our deathbeds, we can share this as naturally as we draw breath. We can share it with our children and with our grandchildren, and we can point them too to Jesus. We pray this in his name so that he will have the glory that is rightfully his. Amen.